Hi, I'm the editor for this segment, and there's a lot of background noise that I can't cut out, so sorry about that. But uh, on with the interview. Welcome to the Perfect Hour Podcast. In this segment, I'm your host, Khalid Levine, Jr. Extraordinaire. In this segment, we're going to be interviewing Mr. James Shapiro, a beloved middle school head uh, director, as well as head coach or just coach? I, anything will work. So, uh, <laughs> co-coach of the Perfect uh, uh, Hour speech, uh, speech and debate team. Okay. A very prestigious team, might I add. Um, losing a couple of very good members this year, but regardless... It's had a good run. You know the deal of interviews. I'd imagine you've been interviewed before. I know you've written a couple of books as well. It's pretty pretty amazing, I'd say. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to sit here and ask you a couple questions. And sure. And hopefully you'll be able to give your best response. <laughs> I'll do my best, Khalid. <laughs> okay. You mentioned uh, Sue Ely, I believe it was. Yeah, Sue Ely used to be, uh, she was originally uh, the chair of the English department, grades 5 through 12. And she began, started the, uh, the peer leadership program at Berkeley Carroll. She's a great teacher, very funny, very sarcastic, very, very smart, and had very high standards for the kids and a, an absolute character. She raised uh, Norwich Terriers for her amusement in her spare time. Sounds like you guys had like a very like, close working relationship. We, we did, yes. I, I mean, uh, we... Just one of those intuitive things. When you get along with people, it's half mystery, half feels preordained, and you sort of almost like you know what to do as you go along. It just feels very natural. Don't have to work at it. So I love Sue's energy and her tell it like it is, take no prisoners kind of style. Uh, so I, I really... You know, there are a thousand different ways that a thousand different people will be, and so... I think in a, a tight, small community that even today Berkeley Carroll really represents, when people bring in their authentic self really sincerely and honestly and strongly, and they love doing what they're doing, whatever other failings I or others bring to the enterprise, whether teachers or parents or kids, all is forgiven if people uh, can have a sense of humor and a willingness to appreciate what's best about each other and to forgive each other for our mutual failings. Because there's no such thing as a perfect environment. A perfect environment is where people are perfectly willing to make the best of what emerges. Then you've got a chance to really sort of live here in this moment, and then when you're no longer at Berkeley Carroll, for whatever reason, you carry that with you. Um, oh, next question, I suppose. You had a pretty interesting life, to say the least. In the question itself, I used the word pretty out, pretty crazy. (laughs) But if I were to read it exactly, it said almost like you jumped out of a fiction book. Would you mind giving us like a couple anecdotes about some of the wildest moments you've experienced? There was a time when I was uh, working on merchant marine freighters, uh, Norwegian freighters. And uh, so I was uh, officially doing the work of what's called an OS, ordinary seaman. So that included standing watch at night. When you're at sea on a freighter, you uh, you work for four hours, you're off for eight, on for four, off for eight, around the clock. It's kind of a strange schedule, but you adjust to it. So one of the jobs you're assigned, besides checking 
the rust off the boat and repainting it is standing watch, especially at night. You stand watch in two places, or I did in this kind of small rattle trap freighter. So one was at the bow of the ship up at the front. There's a little bell, and you ring the bell once when you see something to the port side, the left side of the boat, twice for starboard, which is on the right side, and three times there was something dead ahead. One night, uh, I was standing watch, and I had binoculars, and there were lights dead ahead, and I kept ringing the bell three times. It was the only way I could communicate with the bridge where the uh, steering takes place, and the officer of the on night duty was there with a couple of other sailors, but no one responded. And so eventually I went up to see what was going on because I was worried we were going to collide with a fishing boat and kill people. And it turned out there was nobody on the bridge of the ship. Um, everyone was drunk and passed out um, <laughs> uh, up there. So it was a kind of startling and really scary situation. I was a young kid. I was 16 years old. And I had to sort of figure out what I could do to salvage the situation. So sometimes you're, you're thrown into moments in your life where there's a lot at stake and you have to just, there's, there isn't time to go ask someone what to do. You have to figure out what to do. So that would be one instance. The other thing maybe worth mentioning is the first real full-time job I had after graduating from college was I worked in the Peace Corps for two years. And I ended up working in the northeast of Brazil, and I was assigned to a very, very, very remote little town. Just about can't find it on a map, even these days. So learning not to take things for granted. It was, it was, at that time, Brazil was living under a military dictatorship, and people who were doing anything out of the ordinary were often victimized or arrested or threatened or disappeared because of the government shutting them down. So I tried to start a literacy program for illiterate men and women who had to drop out of school maybe after a year or two years or three years. So they really had essentially no reading or writing skills. And there was a lot of interest among the people that I got to know in the town to start something like that. So I started a, an adult literacy program, and the uh, U.S. government heard about it. Um, so the uh, CIA called me into the nearest uh, big city, and they forced me to shut down the program because they felt it was a kind of communist or socialist kind of enterprise. It was nothing of the sort. It was really just a chance to kind of try to redress the balance a little bit for people who had been neglected at that time by their own government. Um, so it was a very shocking incident and really disturbing and really made me feel how hard it is for a large enterprise like a, a government, our government and the Brazilian government, to see clearly what the lives of people are really like and what's needed um, in order to help people live their right to a full life. I think until that time, since I was a college graduate, I hadn't understood as deeply as I needed to what natural rights are, that there's an inherent dignity to all people, 
and we can't have a proper life if we don't honor that. And it's very hard work to honor it. Um, and very unsettling when you see that we can neglect people. So it's made me interested in a particular kind of way in the importance of the community life of politics and rights, not in a dry way, not in some theoretical way, but actually how do we help people live the best lives possible? So I think that's really what's animated me as a school teacher is like, it's the same thing. How do you help kids learn to be their best selves? Yeah, that was really interesting. Why the Navy? Oh, well, that, that was... The Merchant Marine is different. The Merchant Marine is commercial nautical enterprise. So is it, it, it No. That, so th- th- those are two separate stories. So one is... One, I just... It happened to be a summer job where I was working on a freighter. So a freighter carries goods for trading that businesses hire the ship and they ship goods between different ports. So that was just one incident to sort of like something that I'd done. The other, the Peace Corps is a, Peace Corps is run by the State Department, and it's a chance to send volunteers, American citizens who are volunteering to do social work to many different countries around the world. And in 1968, I had signed up for the Peace Corps, was assigned to work in Brazil for two years, which I did. And that's where I met people in this very remote area. How long have you been here? It's a good thing I have a little bit of mathematical capacity. Not much, but uh, last I counted uh, and had to repeat on my fingers and toes, uh, this will make 29 years. I thought of hanging on for one more year to make it 30 because round numbers are very gratifying. But then I thought, if I run 9.3378 miles, is that less worthy than running 10 miles? 10 miles is a more pleasant number to offer. So 29 is a good stretch. Pretty interesting analogy you yeah. there. <laughs> My next question is, I understand, or at least I remember hearing some kind of ambitions in moving to Asia and really studying. Well, I, I, I do study with a, uh, a Zen master. Yeah. Uh, so it's Zen Buddhism. And that's a particular school within the great panoply of Buddhist studies. There's so many schools of Buddhism and different types of Buddhism in different parts of the world. So it's a really vast universe of different ways to approach the core teachings. It just so happens that I am studying in recent years with a Japanese Zen teacher. And so I'll be studying a portion of the uh, each year in Japan and Kyoto. And then probably a portion of the year in North Carolina. But I'll still be in the New York area for a good portion of the year. It's not every day you go to, you know, speech and debate teacher goes, (laughs) but only for a portion of the year. Yeah. Yeah, so also, to add on to that question, what what led you down this path? Or or at least what made you decide to either A, study Buddhism, or B, go to Asia and take that step? Right. But the, I've actually been, uh, I haven't toted up the, the full number of years, um, but I've, I've been a student of Zen Buddhism for probably, I don't know, around 40 years maybe. 
So uh, it, the origin of it, in a sense, is a book that I happened to pick up when I was on a bus trip going through uh, on a Greyhound bus and I stopped a little bookstore in Portland, Maine and found a second-hand paperback book about Zen Buddhism. And I was instantly fascinated. And so the deeper question is why Zen Buddhism in particular, I think because how to face the issue of life and death is such a fundamental question uh, that it's hard to imagine why one would not actually engage with that issue of what does it mean to live fully and what does it mean to die fully and the I hesitate I wouldn't call Zen Buddhism a religion and I wouldn't call it either a, a philosophy it's I find it it evades easy characterization I think it has aspects of both, and different people approach it in both those ways. But to me, Zen Buddhism means very simply, how do you live without dividing yourself at all from everything that you encounter, whether that's living or dying? And even those words are utterly inadequate to encapsulate what it means to be here in this moment. So even the moment that we're sharing where you're looking at me, asking questions, and I'm looking back at you and trying to provide a reasonable answer. So, uh, you know, I make no judgment about it. People need to find a way to live that makes sense for them. So for me, given my temperament and my restlessness and the questions that I'm looking to clarify the answers about, then Zen Buddhism comes the closest to providing me with a a way to step moment by moment with a degree of assurance and care uh, in a way that feels appropriate for the challenges of being alive in this world. Uh, we get one chance to do it right. Yes. Nice. If you had to make a list, who do you feel like were your top five speech and debate? There's a volunteer, sorry, pupils, because the way I wrote that. Yeah, I'm definitely not going to answer this question the way you're hoping, because... <laughs> I was going to, to Yeah, to pick five is... That, that assumes there's a kind of rank order, and there's a way to define what best means. Some of the students who have left the strongest impression, and that's not always an accurate one, have been students who didn't do particularly well in terms of formal competitive rankings. You know, um, I had a student who he lost just about 75% of all the rounds he ever debated, and he was always upset, and he would never read his ballots, or he'd read them and then he'd crumple them up and throw them away. But he was utterly dedicated to philosophy and the spirit of engagement with ideas, and I think he was crazy enough later to get the name of uh, Nietzsche, the philosopher, uh, tattooed on his arm or some quotation <laughs> from Nietzsche. So uh, he took it all the way, and, and it was so important to him. So I, I totally admired that spirit. Later, I was contacted by a, a student. I used to have to go. I think I actually had to go to her apartment where she was living with her family and wake her up to come to a tournament. She overslept. She forgot about it. I always was nagging her to, why won't you go to a tournament? So I was, I enjoyed her very much, but she later let me know that she's working for the New York City Council, for a city council member, and that 
She thinks about what she got out of debate every day. It changed her life. And I never would have known that. I never would have imagined it. So one of the things I've learned over the years in all the courses that I've taught, all the encounters, is there's really a limit to how much we know about other people and what matters. Everything matters. So even if debate was actually not so special for someone, that's okay. As long as people approach it with some kind of sincerity and enthusiasm, whatever they can derive from it, that's all to the good. I, I was put in this world of teaching to help people find what helps them, not what helps me or makes me feel better. It's, it's about other people, not oneself. But let's say you had to rank them by easiest <laughs> to work with. <laughs> no, you're asking questions that I'm just going to defy you about because, you know, again, I, I don't know what easiest to... I mean, of course I know what you mean yeah, when yeah. you're asking what easiest means to work with, but my question is, what's the purpose of the question? The real purpose of the question, I think, is what's the meaning of working in communication? What's the what's the meaning of how a student and teacher find each other, find a way to work together? What merit can we derive from that? What do we take away as a teacher and as a student of value? The thing is, it's always, time is not fixed. Time is always flowing. So to, I don't know if you've ever seen slackliners. Slackline is, it's like essentially a one or two inch wide band of like a, a flat version of a tightrope. And it's very bouncy. So I've recently discovered slacklining. It's something to watch on YouTube videos. So what does it mean to people to do slacklining? I think it means whether you're three feet above the ground or you're walking over a 300-foot deep crevice, which I would imagine to be utterly terrifying, the way you do it is you give your full concentration to what's immediately in front of you. So as you swing each foot out over the emptiness and find a way to locate your balance, your strength, your focus, your sense of drive, going somewhere, doing something. At its best, it's a practice of giving yourself over to the moment that you're in. I think if people do that, then they've learned something of, of value, not just for themselves. If we're in, the moment we're in often is occupied by other people. So if we're careful with our commitment to other people, as well as to ourselves, then we've learned how to give a speech or how to listen to a speech. So, you know, again, I, I'm not in a position to judge um, who best learns from doing that. So that's why I don't want to rank. I'm going to say that that was a very creative way of avoiding the question. Yes. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm very good at not answering what I don't want to answer. But that does raise an interesting question <laughs> in my mind. Of what exactly do you like watch on YouTube? What does the great Mr. Shapiro watch in his free time? Well, I'm fascinated by track and field because I used to coach it here. I coached it for 12 years, middle and high school. I coached uh, cross country, uh, winter track, track and field. And I very rarely these days ever, I haven't for years been to a, a formal meet like at uh, Madison Square Garden. So once in a while, I'll, I'll watch some Olympic version of something that I've seen. The uh, Tim Conway on the Carol Burnett show is one of the funnier human beings to ever be alive. I'm 
fascinated by comedians and so sometimes comic things like that. Also, there have been some very special documentaries I've seen that give me insight to what's going on around the world. Uh, I did spend some time in the Middle East and that left a really profound impression on me. So I'm very interested in all of those countries, the Arab world, what's going on, what people are struggling with, thinking about, and sometimes uh, a piece of music that is really exceptionally interesting. In the early part of the 20th century, there was a, a middle school uh, music teacher in Japan who composed and wrote, uh, wrote the lyrics for the song called Moon, in English, Moon Over Ruined Castle. It's a very melancholy, beautiful tune. And he died very young. He was 36, or maybe, no, maybe younger in his 20s, died of tuberculosis when he was traveling in Europe. So there's, there are glimpses sometimes on YouTube videos of stories and endeavors that people get into. I'm, I'm really quite fascinated by extreme sports as well, like uh, parkour or wingsuit flights or folks who climb mountains, base jumpers, things like that. When people put themselves in extreme, extremely challenging physical places out of which it's very hard to escape alive, it really interests me that kind of psychology, that kind of courage, that kind of... And sometimes what seems misguided, something they're taking out of it that, that's not necessarily so helpful for them or for other people. Interesting. Yeah. We've got a array of different things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really, the last of the serious questions here. Okay. Uh, what's your greatest regret in your birth and care career? I just feel overall there are times I could have worked harder, pushed harder, done more, followed through more precisely. I think sometimes I allowed myself to feel tired before I was really tired, and so I could have worked harder, and I, I regret that. Okay, this one's going to be made up on the spot. Okay. Okay. I'd like to ask you if it's possible for you to describe the moral philosophy behind the Big Bang Theory, Sheldon Cooper's famous catchphrase, Bazinga. <laughs> but I, I don't even know what the reference is. Oh, that's even better. You could just make up anything you'd like that. What's behind the moral philosophy of... The moral you? philosophy of Bazinga. Bazinga. It sounds like a very spurious, specious uh, way just to poke fun at language and meaning. So this guy should, whoever he is, should probably not be allowed to communicate with other people for a while. Interesting that you say that, <laughs> considering who Sheldon Cooper is. I'd like to have at least one more question here. Ooh, how many animal noises can you make? How many what? Animal noises. I've never counted, but I, I'm, I'm, you mean to demonstrate now? I, I would like to demonstrate. That's a, that's, no, that's a frightened white-tailed deer. It's quite startling when you hear it in the forest. That's a, not very good on the lips of a horse looking for someone to put oats in its, uh, what else? I, I think that suggests the general range of uh, biological phenomenon, the phenomena that we could uh, appeal to. Yeah, Pretty good. Yeah. I suppose we'll close it here. 
All right. With our final question, I'll ask you, can you say goodbye and farewell, BC, in your best Yoda impression? Mm. Oh, uh, I, I only saw the movie once, so uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll just, I, I can only do it my way, which is goodbye and thank you, BC. I like it. Genuine, sincere. Yeah. Well, All thank right. you, Mr. Shapiro, yeah. for allowing me to do this. Yeah, total um, pleasure. It's taken about two weeks because of all kinds of different factors, but we did it. We did it. It's done. It's done. And forever, you are now going to be <laughs> in the annals of Spotify. As uh, yeah, well, we know that there's nothing forever, so that's okay. <laughs> that's probably a relief. <laughs> if the world, if the universe contained a, the memory of every activity, every sort of possibility, uh, I don't know if there'd be space for anything new to happen. So I think we should allow things to disappear and make room for the next thing. I feel like you've always brought something new to the table. <laughs> I don't know about that. But <laughs> anyway, it's been it's been a lot of fun, Khalif. Thank you so much for running the interview. Okay. Let's see if we can get a handshake on the microphone. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> Try not to break my bones. You can break my psychological bones, but take it easy on the body. So. Okay. All right. All right. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Great. <laughs> We're gonna cut it here. Thank yeah. you, guys.